our study of the book of, of Hebrews as it comes to the uh, series that we've been undertaking, uh, Christ of the Book. As a matter of fact, it's in the book of Hebrews that we have the scripture that somewhat gave us the impotence to, to, uh, to launch into this study. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And as you study the book of Hebrews, you find out, you discover exactly what the will of the Father was for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah. And so it's an exciting study as we look at at Hebrews that portrays Christ as the author of eternal salvation, the author of our eternal salvation, if you will. And it's an exciting study, an exciting study for me. And I think it's because of the way this book portrays our Lord in such an exalted, exalted way, and as it should. For He alone is worthy of our worship, he alone is worthy of our praise. Uh, the book of Hebrews points out that Christ Jesus is superior in every way. He is better in every way. Better than angels, better than prophets, better than Moses. His sacrifice is better. His priesthood is better. So this morning we're going to be looking at his priesthood. We're going to be looking at his sacrifice today. And you think, well, of course it's better. He's God. Of course it's going to be get better. Well, just keep in mind that the author of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrews, to the Jews, to those who were skeptical, to those who were doubters. Uh, they did not have the last 2,000 plus years they did not have the completed Word of God to fall back on. There were those that were questioning. There were those that were skeptical. Uh, this is the inspired Word of God going out during that transition period as the God's calling and plan and purpose for the nation of Israel was in that transition period, how they were uh, being and are now partially blinded uh, keep in mind that Hebrews was written about the same time as the book of Romans was written. It's the book of Romans that tells us uh, what was going on with Israel, how the partial blindness has come to Israel in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. And the book of Hebrews, I think, delves into that, reaching out to those Jews, those Hebrews that, that were needing to hear that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And so here we have this book that was in readers, that was the, uh, intended for this epistle, these Jews, these Hebrews. See, they understood something about those things. They understood something about the prophets, about Moses, about the sacrifice, the, about the priesthood of that were all associated with the Messiah. So the comparison, the author of Hebrews had to make sure that these types and all the things that, that he was writing about, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's not going to be in error, need to make sure that, that they could associate that, they could, they could understand that this was directed to the Hebrews, to the Jews, to those of the nation of Israel. Understand, Gentiles would not understand what was being talked about here. The Gentiles, this would be uh, foreign to them. But the Jews, it had things that they had been taught, and we're going to find out that the author of Hebrews basically accuses them of of not being as learned as they needed to be. Matter of fact, the, the author of Hebrews is going to say, you should be the teachers, but you're not. 
You're in need of being taught. So he's going to criticize them for that. So that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, is trying to bring home that point. Uh, when it comes to the nation of Israel, God's plan, the offer of the kingdom, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, all of those things come together in the book of Hebrews, and it is the book of Hebrews that ties or that connects all the dots. It is an explanation. It is proof positive of everything that Christ Jesus and his earthly ministry claimed to be. And that's how we look at the book of Hebrews. That's how we study the book of Hebrews. As you go through the book of Hebrews, what it reminds me of is that old Hallmark commercial. Remember that old Hallmark commercial when it was about if 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 when you care enough to send the very best well that's what the book of hebrews is it the book of hebrews is the epistle it's the hallmark epistle it demonstrates that god the father cared enough to send the very best god the son and that god the father's promises concerning the messiah would be accomplished and it was, again, connecting all those, those dots. And as we get into this, I want you to keep something in mind, something extremely important, that Christ Jesus didn't just offer up a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. It's important that you understand that. As we go through this, he didn't just offer up the sacrifice. He offered up himself as the sacrifice. And the important thing that you understand about that is that the order of priesthood that he was part of enabled him to do that. Not with the earthly tabernacle, not as a earthly high priest, but as the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and we're going to talk about him in just a second. But Hebrews explains to some doubting, skeptical Jews that were very legalistic that would say, well, this can't be so, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, why this can't be so. The book of Hebrews says, oh, yeah, it can. Here's how. And a verse-by-verse -verse study of this is just phenomenal. Keep this in mind as we study for the, the book of Hebrews today. The thing that this church stands on firmly, and that is in order to understand the Scripture, you must rightly divide the word of truth. You say, Pastor, you talk about that all the time. Yes, I do, for good reason. Because I want you to understand the Word of God. I want you to know what it says, what it means, how you can apply it to your life. So as you study the book of Hebrews, understand that we must rightly divide. In the book of Hebrews, it's talking about a special covenant to a special people, a nation of, of priests, a nation that understood that the Messiah was to be prophet, priest, and king. That equals the Messiah. Those three titles equal Messiah. The book of Hebrews points that out. So you rightly divide between prophecy, that which the prophets had declared and talked about concerning the coming Messiah, the things that Christ Jesus did on earth that proved that he was the promised Messiah. You make the distinction between that and, pro and the mystery, that which we're part of, not with uh, uh, all those promises to Israel, not us being spiritual Israel, and all those promises that were to Israel all of a sudden got changed. So, okay, church, body of Christ, you're now spiritual Israel. Not that. Two separate programs, promise, uh, a prophecy and mystery which we're part of, the body of Christ, joint heirs with God, understanding that special dispensation, that special calling, that special revelation that 
uh, Paul was given to him concerning this present church age, this present time, separating that from the call of the apostles, the twelve representing the nation of Israel and all of those plans and program for God. And that after their rejection, after their partial blindness, the mystery that God was not willing that any should perish. So he offers salvation not based on a covenant promise to a peculiar people, a special people, but by grace to whosoever believes. Understanding Gentiles, our salvation was based on Israel getting their act together and doing what God had called them to do. Now, this is all by way of review from last week, but I think it's important that we understand that our salvation is not based on those covenant promises to Israel. Those promises are still going to be fulfilled. Our salvation is based on the fact that God is gracious, that God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's God's will that the Gentiles be saved. Uh, John 4.22, we talked about last week, the salvation was of the Jews. Maybe we did that on Wednesday night. See what happens if you miss Wednesday night, you don't get that part. But we talked about that on Wednesday night, how important that is that you understand salvations of the Jews under the kingdom program. But he came into his own and his own what? Received him not. And according to Paul, they are temporarily partially blinded until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This is the church age where salvation is being offered to all who believe by faith, who trust in the complete and finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross, who believe in the gospel of the grace of God. The Gentiles can come and before God's throne understanding that we are saved and made part not of a nation with all the blessings and privileges of that nation, but oh, so much more so. We come as a body, His body, placed in His body, spiritually placed in His body, immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, sealed into the day of redemption, so that we identify with His perfect righteousness. We have none of our own, but boy, in Christ, in Christ, we stand secure, we stand righteous. When I stand before Christ, I'm not going to stand and talk about my own goodness because, folks, there absolutely is none that would qualify me to say, let me in. I deserve to be let in because I don't. But I will be ushered into His presence because I belong to Him. I have been made a new creation in Christ. Not because I worked, not because I did anything other than what God's Word says I must do to be saved, and that is believe that Christ died for my sins, He was buried for me, and He rose again for my justification. Wow, what a plan of salvation. So Gentiles, we can do a jig. We can get excited. We can say, Israel, you rejected him. And, and by the way, and I really do want to get through with Hebrews today, but this is, and, and you need to understand, it's good the week finally came to an end because the more I studied, I think, oh, I got to add that. Oh, I got to put this. I'm not even going to show you my notes because you couldn't read them anyway. But the whole point of it is, is that as we look at this, we see the glory of God. We see the all-sufficiency of Christ in God's program for the nation of Israel. But they rejected Him. And today, this is what I was going to say. I almost forgot it. You hear a lot about Messianic Christians. You hear a lot about Messianic Jews. There's no such thing. Not that a Jew, are you there, there are Jews that are Christian. There are Jews who believe 
that Christ died for their sins, was buried, and rose again, and they're part of the body of Christ. And when the rapture occurs, they're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But there is no special grouping because Christ is not offering himself today to Israel as their Messiah, but boy, does he offer himself to an entire world that's lost in sin as a risen Savior. So there is no special just because a person is a Jew and he believes that Christ was the Messiah, if he does not believe that Christ died for his sins, was buried and rose again, uh-oh. So that, that, I'm a Messianic Jew. I'm a Messianic Christian. Okay. But I'm a redeemed believer in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Do you see the difference? Those differences, those distinctions are so important. Anyway, Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we left off last week, and I'm gonna, we're going to move through this, I, I promise. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, and you have an extra hour today anyway, daylight, right? Yeah, so we got time. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is where we left off last week. For the Word of God is alive. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I kind of understand why people are afraid of this book, because it's alive and it's powerful, and there is conviction that comes when you study it. I was listening to a testimony of a guy just yesterday, and the guy was talking about how he was having a tough go in life, and he drove a truck, and in his truck, there he had a book of Psalms and having a tough time and his truck got stuck out on the highway someplace. I can't remember now what he said was going on. So in his truck, he just had that book of Psalms. Not even sure what put it there, but he, when he put it there, why he put it there, but he just got to read again. And folks, I'm here to tell you that as he read it, he said, the Lord Jesus was there with me in that truck that the Holy Spirit brought conviction. The whole, there was power. It was cutting. It was cutting through my sin, my wickedness, my rebellion. And he said, that night, I trusted Christ because I realized it was alive. And he had heard the gospel before, but it was that reading through some of the Psalms that he understood that the Word of God is alive. I can understand why even... Carnal believers want to shy away from it because I'm telling you, conviction, conviction is here in the Word of God. It is alive. And I can tell you this, that there will never be a discovery. There will never be a scientific uh, discovery. There'll never be an archaeological discovery. There'll never, have it, there'll never be anything. Men may reject it. Men may deny it. But there will never be anything that you're confronted with that disproves the truth of this book. It is alive. It's powerful. And it separates the natural from the spiritual, the soul from the spirit. So I challenge you to read it for your wealth, not financially, but spiritually, because it's alive. I challenge you to find out that out for yourself. But look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him which, with whom we have to do. In other words, you can't hide anything from God. He knows it all. I know skeptics will go, that's impossible. Well, yeah, to humans, well, those of us that have such a finite mind and limitation, but not with God. And when we do a verse-by-verse -verse study of this, we're going to spend some time on that verse because that verse is an important verse to understand just exactly who God is, that He is all-powerful, 
He is all-knowing. He's all-present. And we go, how can that be? Well, we can't. We are so limited. I mean, I don't even understand how these lights are working. I, don't, I mean, I don't understand electricity. I don't understand that cell phone that I use. We were talking about Wi-Fi last night or this morning sometime. I don't understand how that, how that works. How in the world am I going to understand the magnificent glory, power, might of God who spoke it all into creation that there has never been a thought that occurred to him? Never. He's never gone, oh, yeah. Never. Our minds can't lay hold of that. But that's the way it is. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Regardless of dispensation. Regardless of which program you're under. God knows it all. And to the book of Hebrews... That was somewhat of a warning, but look at verse 14. Seeing then that that which, seeing then that we have a great high priest. Understanding that the nation of Israel depended on their high priest. They depended on him going into the Holy of Holies, offering the sacrifice once a year for forgiveness. Verse 13, it's saying, nothing is hid from God. He knows it all, but... You have a high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession or our calling. See, it was back over in Hebrews 2.17 that he had already told them, we have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author is making sure these Hebrews, these Jews understand that they have someone who is sufficient who can sufficiently go into that heavenly tabernacle, that heavenly temple. Because God knows all. You have a, you have a high priest that's taken care of all of that. Verse 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, he's saying their high priest... He, he knows our feelings. He sympathizes with us. But who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin? See, that's the big, that's the big difference. That's the big difference. And Peter, when he's writing to the scattered, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, talks about the Lord Jesus Christ who did no sin, nor was there any gall in him. Making sure they understand that this high priest is perfect. There is no sin. And the only reason that can be is because he is God. That he is special. He is special. That he's without sin let us therefore, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As he's writing to these Hebrews, he's saying, we have a high priest. Yeah, he knows everything we've done. But let me tell you, he's entered into the temple, the heavenly temple. He's laid down the sacrifice himself. So we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Folks, we have that same assurance when it comes to our salvation being in Christ. Our sin debt has been paid once and for all. We stand perfect in Christ. Aren't you glad of that this morning? God knows your every thought. He knows your every sin. He knows your every action. And if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done on our behalf, we ought to be shaken in our shoes. Yes, He knows, but He also recognizing, recognizes. He all, also accounts 
for that death of Christ on Calvary's cross being for on, on my behalf. He was delivered for my offenses. He was raised again for my justification, which means to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. Verse 5, or chapter 5, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In other words, the author's making sure they understand, hey, every high priest has a calling from God uh, so that he can carry out the function of the high priest who can have compassion on the ignorant. I, I like that. Every high priest that Israel had ever had was capable of offering sacrifices for the people. And these high priests, these, these earthly, these priests after the order of Aaron, they can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way or who are wayward. For that he himself also is surrounded by weakness. So he, he's, he's getting ready to compare the priest of Aaron to the priest, the type of priest that the Lord Jesus Christ is, which is far superior. And he's setting, he's setting up this, this storyline for them to understand that, verse 3, and by reason thereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. He has to offer up forgiveness of sins, sacrifices for his sins when he went into the Holy of Holies and for the sins of the people. Before he could offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people, who did he have to offer up a sacrifice for? Himself. Why? Because he was a sinner. But God ordained it that way. God called that man to do that. But look at verse 4. For no man takes this honor this privilege unto himself, but that he that is called of God, as was Aaron. No man can just say, you know what, I, he can't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a priest today, or I want to be the high priest. It had to be from the tribe, tribe of Levi, that's important. Register that thought, he had to be from the tribe of Levi. But nobody woke up and said, I'm going to be I'm going to be the high priest. They had to be called of God. And according to Nehemiah, there was such a chain of command. There was, there was such a, a, a lengthy process in order of calling where the high priest would come from. So they had to be called of God. There had to be order to it. They had to be qualified is what that few verses are saying. But boy, the author's getting ready to tell these reading Jews these Hebrews, so also Christ is glorified, not of himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son today, have I begotten thee. What makes Christ Jesus qualified to be the high priest is because God himself, God the Father, chose him. If you got a problem with it, take it up with God the Father. That's basically what he's saying here. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but that he said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And he said also unto, in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. See, it was God. Just as Aaron was called, Christ Jesus was also called to be a high priest. But see, a doubting Hebrew here could scratch his head and go, wait, 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 wait. Under the law, he had to be from the tribe of Levi. And actually, he's even going to say that here in a few minutes. He's not from the tribe of uh, Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So, yeah, he could be king. The, the, he, he could be king, but he can't be priest. Oh, yeah, God called him. And the whole argument here is going to be, 
if God, who, who established the Aaronic priesthood? Who established it? I mean, who, who gave it to Moses? Let me give you a hint. It was God. God is the one who established it. God is the one who said, here's what I want you to do. Here's how under the law it's going to be prescribed. Here's how you're going to function. Here's how you're going to select these people. Here's how this is going to work. This, this was God who did it. So if God did it, who are we to argue with it? And that's the whole point here. Look down in verse 11. Well, look, verse 10. Called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Called of God a high priest. You don't argue with God. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. That's what I was talking about a while ago. He's getting... He, he, the author here is telling these Hebrews that are listening and reading this, you're dull of hearing. For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you, again, what be the first principles or the rudiments of the belief, that's the law and the offerings of the oracles of God, and you have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Boy, he's, he's criticizing them for them not understanding what's going on, what's happening, because the rejection is taking place. Israel is slipping further and further away from that initial offer that Peter did in Acts chapter 3. Look at Hebrews 6, 9. Moving right along. But beloved, we are persuaded better. See, it was criticizing them for their lack of maturity and here in Hebrews 6, verse 9, it's an exhortation to be mature. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God, is not, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, see, that's the theme. It's Abraham, those promises, who the nation of Israel is, where they came from. For when God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, who did God swear by? Himself. Himself. When he made the promises to Abraham, there was no one else higher. You ever heard somebody say, or oh, I swear by my mother's grave, or I swear by whatever. Well, God promised Abraham. So God's word is at stake that the promises to Abraham be fulfilled. And where that was done is when he promised him uh, a seed, Isaac, and Isaac and Jacob. How, how absolutely glorious that is that God's going to, he made the promise, that promise is going to be carried out. For men verily swear by the greater and an oath for a guarantee is to them an end of all strife. If I promise you something, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to doubt it, unless it's about a loan. Then check or cash the check quickly. But if I promise something, that if you promise something, that should be the end of it. And that's what that is saying. Verse 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immu immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. God not only promised, he swore an oath to fulfill those promises. That's the good news. You talk about the good news of the kingdom, you talk about the glory of, the, of that truth. God made a promise to Abraham, 
what he was going to do. He swore an oath to Abraham, and it's immutable. It's not changeable. It's going to be carried out. God is going to do it. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. You want to know something God cannot do? He can't lie. So if anybody ever says, I have a question for you. Young people used to do that all the time. Can God do everything? And, you know, most people get, well, yeah. Well, then can he make a rock too big for him to pick up? You know, and then they'll laugh and think that was a deep question. But when people say, can, can, God, can God do anything? Can God do everything? You can go, no, no, can't lie. Scripture says you can't lie. He can't sin. So God can't do everything. He can't lie. Aren't you glad of that this morning? But it says, by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What are those two immutable things? His promise and His oath. And if you are Hebrew and you're reading through this, and you know what the promises were to the fathers, it was to get them excited. Just as I said, the book of Hebrews to the nation of Israel is what the book of Romans is to us, members of the body of Christ. That's important. And we're going to be looking at that here in a couple of weeks. Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, Tim, it'll probably be part four. Because there's still, we've got, we don't even have, we've not even gotten into the sacrifice yet. What a, what a sacrifice. What an understanding. Chapter 7. Here we have the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is a special order. This is different from the order of the Aaronic priesthood, after the order of Aaron. After the order of Melchizedek, there's no altar. There's no pedigree. There was only one sacrifice. The first time we ever hear about Melchizedek, Abraham is coming to him to pay tithes and offerings to him way back in Genesis. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. So you can't argue with it. He is the priest of the Most High God. It is God who qualifies him. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth, first of all. First being by interpretation, king of righteousness. I think we know the name of the king of righteousness by another name. The Lord Jesus Christ. I, I think the king, the, the priest Melchizedek, the high priest, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The one that Abraham met, I believe, was the Lord Jesus. He is... The king of righteousness, that's what the name Melchizedek means. And after that, also the king of Salem. Uh, Salem is another name for which city? It starts with a J. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Which is king of peace. Verse 3. To me, this pretty much sums up who Melchizedek is. I know a lot of people have tried to jump around this and try to make it sound, well, this is what it really means. And, and I, I'm just going to take it at face value. 
because that's, that's all I know how to do. Who is this Melchizedek? He's without a father. He's without a mother. He's without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Boy, that sets him apart. And you read that, and who does that describe? The Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 10 talks about the superiority of Melchizedek. Verse 11, and and this is the $64,000 question. This is the question that's really being asked throughout the entire book of Hebrews. This, This question, bells and whistles need to go off. This question here is the $64,000 question. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? If therefore that priesthood under Aaron was perfect, then we, is, why is there a need for another one? And the whole point from here on out is that Aaronic priesthood was not sufficient. He goes on to say, verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Uh-oh. Don't tell me God can't change. You know, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no shadow of turning with Him, but in order for Christ to be the high priest after the order of Melchizedek and it be honored and recognized, there had to be a change in the law. That's what that's saying. If a law is going to be changed, who's the only one that can do it? The Lord Jesus and God himself, which is the Lord Jesus. God can change it. God recognizes that ironic priesthood is not being sufficient. Yes, he recognized it. He honored it because they brought those sacrifices in faith. And by grace, he recognizes those sacrifices. But there is no blood of bulls or goats or, or squealing sheep that could ever forgive sin. Never. But the blood of the righteous one, God himself, Hebrews is going to go into without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We're going to save that for next week, okay? Because it's too, too important to pass over. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. That's not me saying it. It's God's word. Because I'm sure there were those saying, you can't do that. What are you talking about? Why? We've, we've practiced this under Aaron, the high priest. You, you can't do that. Why? Do you know who we are? And the author is making sure they understand God can, God has recognized Him. For He and He alone is going to enter not the earthly tabernacle, not the earthly temple. You realize that Christ never did that? He never went in and offered a sacrifice. Oh, but he did when he entered the heavenly. And he did it once. Well, we're going to talk about that next week for all. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe. Which tri- Making sure we understand, he's talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Which tribe was Christ from? Judah. He was from the tribe of Judah, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. No one else had ever done that before. For it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. Man, he's getting down to the nitty-gritty and answering all their questions, making sure they understand 
why there needs to be a new. And it is yet more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Who gives God the authority to recognize His only begotten Son as the supreme sacrifice? He gives it to Himself. You talk about an awesome God. You talk about an all-powerful God. You talk about one that's worthy of our praise, our worship. It's Him. Verse 16, who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For He testifies, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Who is that better hope? It is the Messiah himself. For those priests were made without an oath, but thee, but this, with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament that God recognizes. And we'll pick back up there next Sunday because we can't overlook these, these sacrifices, this covenant, this new covenant that was to be entered into that hasn't been entered into yet hasn't been entered into yet but it will when Christ sits down with them in the millennial kingdom when he recognizes and Israel recognizes those blessings what a, what a tremendous savior we have what a tremendous God we serve with the thought of of how much he loves us. Do you realize that when Israel said, we'll not have this man to reign over us, when they rejected him as king, when they stoned Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, and he looked up to heaven and he saw Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, after they'd already talked about the fact that the Scripture says, sit here on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, Well, all of a sudden, he's back up. Israel is being judged for their rejection. God, in his wrath, in his judgment, could have said, let the tribulation start. I'll show them. I will bring such wrath upon them through the beast and the false prophet. And, because that's what was next on the prophetic agenda. God in His wrath, He could have said, that's it. Because the tribulation is to draw Israel back to Himself. That's what the tribulation is all about. It's to bring Israel back to God. He could have said, I'm going to do that. But He didn't. Aren't you glad this morning that God has looked past our sins and he's seen our need. And in his mercy, you talk about grace. He raised up the very one that was saying, we don't want this Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going to go up there to Damascus, and I've already thrown a bunch of them in prison. I've already been responsible for all these people that have been killed, who have bought into this Messiah that Christ is the, Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I'm making short order of them. He was on Paul, Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. 
God's judgment didn't fall. His grace, His mercy on the chief of sinners, the one leading the rebellion, He saves him by grace away from Israel, away from the twelve. He saves him by grace and He gives him the revelation of a truth that causes you to sit out there this morning and worship the Most High God. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Saved by grace. You're saved by believing that when Christ hung on the cross, when Israel's Messiah hung on the cross, that payment in His blood that He was making God, in His infinite grace and mercy, not desiring to include, desiring to include even Israel in unbelief, so He could have mercy on all, recognizing that death on your behalf, recognizing that burial as on your behalf, recognizing that resurrection as being on your behalf. You talk about love. Wow. Wow. What love. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here today that's never by faith trusted you as Savior, Father, they've never believed that you died for them, you you rose again for them. Father, may they understand that there is a judgment coming. Every person here will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we stand before you, will it be as Savior or will it eventually be as judge? Father, I pray this morning that every person here has settled that all-important issue, and they can sing, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, His child and forever I am. Father, I pray that everybody here has a personal relationship with you. But Father, should they not, I pray the Holy Spirit just move on them, convict them of their sin, convict them of their need, to trust you so that heaven awaits not hell. We pray these things in Christ's holy and most precious name. Amen.